Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, uh, and we'll be reading the section that we've read the last couple of uh, Sundays that we've been uh, um, in this uh, great book of Hebrews, the section that begins in chapter 3, verse uh, 7, and then goes all the way through to chapter 4, verse 13, this long um, section of exhortation. But uh, this morning we shall be focusing on verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence. In your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, 
so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I can well imagine that as the original recipients of this letter to the Hebrews heard the preacher's sermon being read out to them, some of them, maybe even most of them, who knows, perhaps all of them, were deeply affected by it. As they heard the preacher, particularly from chapter 3 and verse 7 on, exhorting them not to harden their hearts, urging them to persevere in their faith, encouraging them to strive to enter God's eternal Sabbath rest, I can well imagine that many of those Hebrew Christians would have felt as if the preacher was speaking directly to them, pinpointing them and their hearts, that the words they heard being read or preached out were rebuking them and reproving them, convicting them, convicting them that they were, in fact, drifting away from Christ, that they had been hardening their hearts with the deceitfulness of sin, that they weren't persevering or striving or living as they knew they ought to be. Perhaps to some of those Hebrews, it felt as though the preacher's words were cutting them right down to size. And perhaps this is how some of you have felt as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, as you have heard its warnings, its very serious, solemn warnings, as you have heard its exhortations, especially in this long section that we've been looking at recently, perhaps it's felt as though your soul has been pierced, your heart has been exposed, you've been reproved and rebuked, convicted, of your sin, convicted that you've been allowing your heart to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, convicted that you've not been going on in your faith in Christ as you know you should have been. Well, if that was happening to the original hearers of this sermon, and if that's been happening to you here at CPC, then in the verses before us this morning, we are given the divine explanation for such a phenomenon. If you have felt challenged and rebuked and convicted by what we've been looking at in Hebrews, then the reason for that is because God has indeed been challenging you and rebuking you and convicting you. God has been speaking to you 
God has been speaking to you in and through his word, the Bible. You've been affected by what you've heard, perhaps powerfully affected by what you've heard, because God's word is inherently powerful. It's not the preacher of the word, but the word itself that has this immense intrinsic power. This is what we learn in the verses before us this morning. This section that began by saying in verse 7 of chapter 3, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, not as the Holy Spirit once said, but as the Holy Spirit says to you today, this section that then continued with a very detailed exposition and application of Psalm 95, now concludes with a succinct description of the Word of God. Here we have, in many ways, the book of Hebrews theology of Scripture. And this is, I believe, what is meant by the word of God in this particular context. He is speaking of the written word, the written record of God's revelation, his scriptures. And in this summary theology of God's written word, his written revelation, the scriptures, we are told very uh, two very basic things. We're basically told what scripture is, And what scripture does. That's what we're told this morning. What scripture is and what scripture does. The attributes and the actions of God's word. Let's look at those in turn. Number one, the attributes of the word of God. What is scripture like? What is scripture? What are its attributes? Well, according to the beginning of verse 12, the word of God is living and active, living and active. Now, obviously, this is not an exhaustive list of Scripture's attributes. We might also legitimately speak, for example, of the Bible's sufficiency, its authority, its necessity, its clarity, and many other things besides. But clearly, it serves the author's purpose in this particular context, to highlight these two particular attributes of God's word, that it is a living word and an active word, and and those two things go together. They are uh, inseparably united. Scripture, we learn here, is no dead letter. It is no dead letter. Scripture, we learn here, is alive with activity. Scripture is alive with energy. It is a most dynamic force. Now, Scripture might well appear to be dead to some people. It might appear to be a dead book to quite a number of people. But if that is the case, then that is only because they are dead. They are spiritually dead. Their eyes have not been enlightened. Their hearts have not been 
made alive or illuminated by the Holy Spirit to see and to believe the glories of the living and active word of God. The problem is not with the Bible. There is never any problem with the Bible. The problem is with them. So if you hear anyone ever complaining that the Bible is dull and boring, that it is utterly irrelevant to their needs and their situation, then you can be sure that is only because they are dull and boring. Not the Bible, but they themselves are the ones who are out of date and out of touch. You see, the Bible is a book like no other. The Bible is the greatest book ever. Works of human literature have the capacity to move and to inspire. I am sure that many of you here this morning have been deeply affected by great human literature, by the works of a Homer or a Shakespeare or a Dostoevsky. But great though these works of human literature are, they pale by comparison to the Bible. The Bible is the book of books. Because of none of these other great works of literature, can it be said that they are living and active? Only of the scriptures can these things be said. Only of the Bible. Can it be said that it is, the text is, living and active? And that is because Scripture is the Word of God. Scripture is God's book, authored by Him. Yes, there were human authors through whom God spoke and caused his word to be written down, inscripturated. But scripture is of divine origin, breathed out by the living and the active God. Breathed out by the God who is all life and who is all activity. You see, the word of God has to be living and active. Because the God of the word, whose word it is, is himself living and active. How could he breathe out a dead, inactive word? And one vital thing that this means is that the word of God has the power to effect its own utterance. It has the power to effect its own utterance. The word of God, because it is alive with activity, has the power to make what it says happen. And this, I think, explains why the author highlights in this context these two particular attributes of God's word. You see, he wants, at this point in his sermon, to impress upon his hearers that God's written word 
has the in- inherent power to do and to effect what it says. After all, what has this preacher been doing for most of the last two chapters? Essentially, he's been expounding and applying a text of scripture, Psalm 95. Expounding and applying that particular text of scripture to a particular pastoral situation. Using that living and active word to exhort his hearers to keep going. And he's been using that particular scripture for this purpose because he knows that as the living and active word of God, scripture has the power in itself to effect the change that he wants to see in them. The preacher well knows that he in himself does not have that power. He knows that he cannot change these Hebrew Christians. He doesn't have that ability. Yes, the scriptures need to be expounded. They need to be applied. I accept that. The preacher well knows that. But the preacher knows that he in himself does not have the power to enable these struggling, weak Hebrew Christians to endure and to keep going and not to fall away. But he knows that the Bible does. He knows that scripture does. He knows that the word of God, rightly expounded and wisely applied, has the power to keep these Hebrews from falling away. It has the power to enable them, you see, to press on and to persevere. He knows, if I can put it like this, he knows that the living and the active word of God can make these weak and weary Hebrew Christians living and active. That is what the word of God does. It makes us alive with activity. And so this very wise preacher lets the Bible do the talking. And that, of course, is exactly what we should always do. We should always let the Bible do the talking. That is what we seek to do in this church. That is why we have the word of God central to our worship services. You don't need to hear me. You need to hear God. And you hear him in his living and his active word. Are you struggling in your faith, brothers and sisters? Have you been convicted these past few weeks that you've not been living as you should have been? That your heart has been growing hard and cold to the things of the gospel. That you have been drifting away from Christ. Well, if that is you, and surely to some extent that is all of us, hear this. The word of God, which is living and active, has the power to change you. The word of God, which is living and active, has the power to enliven you. To energize you. To activate you. So this should be of great encouragement to you. God's word, his living and active word, is at work within you. You can't change yourself. I certainly 
cannot change you. But God, by his word, can. And God, by his word, does. God's word is at work in your heart. And this brings me to my next point this morning, the actions of the word of God, what the word of God does. Now, the writer goes on to say that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it seems to me that he has in mind here the passage that he's already alluded to, Numbers 14. You may, re- may remember from that passage um, that the, the, the first generation to leave uh, Egypt, uh, that wilderness generation, disobeyed God. They 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 uh, failed to believe his promise and so they they did not enter the land they were told they wouldn't but then what did they do they they tried to enter the land um by their own strength by their own power in, in clear violation by the way of what god had commanded them at that point and then what happened to them when they tried to enter the land in violation of God's command. Well, they were cut down by the sword of the Amalekites and the Canaanites. And it seems to me that the author has that particular episode still in his mind when he describes the word of God as sharper than any two-edged sword, sharper than the sword of the Amalekites and the Canaanites. Even more powerful is the word of God, even more dangerous, we might say, is the word of God than a literal sword. And this is because of what the word of God does. God's living and active word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces, we're told, in verse 12, to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What's more... Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now what is being emphasized here in these verses, this is the the big point, there are some difficulties in these verses, but the big point is this, God's word is incredibly powerful. God's word is the most powerful weapon in the whole world. It is the sword of the spirit, as as we read earlier on from Ephesians 6. Powerful in defending you against Satan, that prince of darkness. Powerful in driving back the kingdom of darkness. Scripture... God's word can be used very powerfully against Satan as we see very clearly in the life of Christ himself. But what the author is emphasizing here when he talks about the incredible power of scripture is how it is used against us or how it is used on us. Not so much Satan in this particular passage, but how it's used against us. And here the author stresses how God's word 
is powerfully applied to us in both an intensive fashion and also an extensive fashion. Another way of putting that, the author here highlights the depth of the power of God's word and also its its breadth. And so to begin with, we see the intensive power of the word of God. The word of God is so sharp that it can penetrate right into the very depths of your personality. The word of God can can get to places where nothing else can get to. The word of God can see things that nothing else, not even the most powerful microscope can see. The word of God can pierce so far into us that it is able to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Now here the author is not saying, at least I don't think he's saying, that soul and spirit are two separate entities. He's not talking about the word dividing between two separate entities, soul and spirit. What we have here, to use a somewhat technical word, I used a technical word last week. Here's another technical word. This one really is technical. I think I'm right in saying this. It's a hendiadis. Hendiadis. Forgive the pronunciation if that's wrong. In other words, what we have here is a single idea expressed by two words. Soul and spirit is an expression denoting our innermost being. And the word, as the sharpest sword, the most sharp sword, is able to rent asunder our inmost self. It's also able to pierce our joints and our marrow. In other words, the most hidden parts of our body. What's being said here is that there is absolutely no part of you that is impervious to the penetrating scrutiny of the word of God. God's word searches all. God's word exposes all of your most hidden thoughts and motives. God's word uncovers all of your deepest desires and ambitions. God's word brings to light everything within you and everything about you. God's word, in a word, shows you for who you really are. You and I can put on a good front. We can be very good at pretending, putting on a show We can even fool ourselves, but we cannot fool God or his word. God's word exposes what you 
are really like in your inmost being. And then, having done this, having, as it were, pulled away all the outer layers of your flesh, like a master surgeon, God's word, we're told, then discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And the idea here really is that God's word passes judgment on you. It doesn't simply show you for what you're really like and then leave it there. It shows you for what you're really like and then it makes an evaluation. It's as if God's word in its piercing and penetrating work receives the test papers, the exam scripts of your hearts. And on these test papers are written all of your innermost thoughts and intentions, those thoughts and intentions that are hidden to everyone else, those thoughts and intentions that are hidden even sometimes to you, but which are not hidden to God's word. And then it's as if God's word in its discerning and its judging work marks the test papers, the exam scripts of your heart. And it gives them a grade. And you know, as well as I, how disappointing and how painful those results are. You know how painful this discerning and this piercing work of the word of God is because it exposes the hidden evils of your heart. It shows you what your hearts are like. It shows you that your hearts are wrong. And then it gives you your grade. Fail. You get a fail grade. And it's not just you who experiences this pain and this disappointment. It's not just you who is exposed by the piercing power of God's word. It's not just you who fails the word's all discerning judgment. It's everyone. Everyone. No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Here we see the full extent the breadth of the power of God's word. Nothing and no one escapes his scrutiny. Everyone, without exception, is naked and exposed before the all-seeing, omniscient eyes of the word of God. Every creature will be judged by it. And every creature will be found wanting. Every creature gets a fail grade. This is what God's living and active word does. This is its most powerful work and action. There is a sense in which it kills you. It cuts you right down. It shows you what you are really like. The world will tell you all things, how you're basically a good person, how you don't need to worry, everything will be all right in the end. 
But God's word treats you seriously. God's word doesn't pretend that everything's okay. God's word shows you what you are really like. And it gives you its unerring verdict. Sinner. Sinful failure. But what I want to say, and what I must say in closing, is this. That this most painful work of God's word is also very good. It's a a very good pain. You see, God's word powerfully pierces your soul so that it might just as powerfully save your soul. God's word exposes and it judges all of the hidden evils of your heart in order to bring health and holiness to your heart. God's word cuts you in order to cure you. It harms you in order to heal you. It breaks you down in order to build you up. It destroys you in order to make you alive. And how does it do this? Well, it does this essentially by telling you about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, of course, himself the living word of the living God, who alone among men, when scrutinized by the all-searching and all-discerning word of God, passed, and passed with flying colors, but whose joints and marrow, whose soul and spirit were, of course, pierced with the pangs of your sin and your failure, who was held accountable and who was judged for your evil, so that you, when judged by God's all-discerning word, might receive his perfect grade. You need to know this morning, brothers and sisters, that this sharper than any two-edged sword word of God is painful because it exposes you and it condemns you. It condemns your sinful heart. But you need to know that this is a good pain. It's a corrective pain because it then applies the sweet balm of the gospel to your sinful heart. So take heart. Take heart. God's living and active word is living and active in you. God's word is doing its work in you. God's word is piercing you, cutting you down, 
bringing you low so that God's word might then perfect you. God's word is giving you the power to persevere to the end. Thank God. Thank God that he gave us his living and active word. What a gift his word is to us. Amen.